Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm the lead pastor here at Red Hills. Thank you for joining us this morning, and thank you for worshiping with our kiddos. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is when, you know, Jesus is teaching, and uh, the kids start running up to him, and all the disciples are trying to shoot him, like, yeah, get out of here, kid. And Jesus is like, no, let the children come to me. Um, I think it's important that we get to witness our children being formed by Jesus the same way that we are, uh, because their faith matters just as much. Um, and it's also a good reminder to know that when Jesus came to the earth, when God decided to reveal his glory in human beings, he did so like that, <laughs> like these kids that we saw on the stage this morning, which is pretty cool. So this, uh, this morning we are in uh, our series in Advent, and we're moving through the different themes of Advent. We've talked about hope, we've talked about joy, we've talked about peace, and this morning we're talking about joy. We lit the joy candle this morning, which is pink. It's, it's the liturgical color of joy. It sets itself apart from the other candles. And we're going to be reflecting on the Christian nature of joy, the nature of Christian joy specifically. Joy is one of those things that I think most of us know goes deeper than like simple happiness, right? Like it's hard to describe joy, but you know it when you're experiencing it. And I think joy usually accompanies relationships. It accompanies people in my life. Like, I feel happy. I feel lots of happiness when I do things like watch Star Trek or eat kimchi fried rice. Like, I feel happy doing those things. But I experience joy when I do things like hold my children or I see my wife celebrated, right? And beyond this, we're even going to look at the idea that, biblically speaking, there is a sort of joy that is given to us from God and from God alone. It's a joy that's exclusive to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, there are several words that are translated as joy in the Scriptures, 18 to be exact, between the Hebrew and the Greek. I won't drag you through the weeds of them. But what's interesting is that sometimes joy is a noun, and sometimes joy is a verb. Uh, there are some words for joy that get used exclusively in the context of worshiping God. Joy is something that we have, but it's also something that we do. And the truest form of joy that we have is found in God and God alone. So how is it that we participate in this joy? Is it something that just happens to us? Or do we have a part to play when it comes to embracing God's joy? And before we jump into these ideas, I do want to take a moment to address the fact that for some of us, there are some seasons where joy might feel elusive. Where it feels like I'm doing everything right, it feels like joy should be there, but there's just not. Juan de la Cruz, or St. John of the Cross, is a theologian from the 16th century, and he experienced this deep depression that he describes as the dark night of the soul. Uh, and he began to experience kind of this sense of a loss of joy in his life, and he wrote a poem called uh, a, a Dark Night of the Soul. And he said this, That light guided me more surely than the noonday sun to the place where he was waiting for me, whom I knew well and where none appeared. St. John of the Cross went through this existential crisis where he had felt the presence of God his whole life, and now all of a sudden things felt different. And I think God sometimes brings us through these dry seasons in order to deepen and mature our relationship with him. It's kind of like a marriage, right? Like at some point, the honeymoon phase has to be over, and the covenant bond of the two of you committed to has to become something deeper than just the butterflies that you feel in your stomachs when you see each other, right? I think our relationship with God can be like this, that it needs to grow to a new place. So if you're in this room and you find yourself in a place where God's joy seems like it's just out of reach, I want to encourage you, God has not forgotten you. 
He hasn't forgotten you. So keep showing up. Keep showing up and keep the faith. Today we're going to be returning to Luke chapter 21, and we're going to be this time in verses 39 through 56. If you remember back to the beginning of the series uh, uh, with hope, Zechariah, the priest, and his wife Elizabeth have just been told that they're going to become pregnant in their old age and give birth to John the Baptist, who is going to become the first bona fide prophet in 400 years. And now Mary, who is betrothed to a man named Joseph, but still a virgin, has just been told by an angel that she is going to conceive via the Holy Spirit to the Messiah, who will be called Jesus. And then the angel also told her about her cousin Elizabeth as well. So Mary, in this passage, is going to visit Elizabeth. Now, I don't know what it's like to be pregnant, clearly, but I know that Jaina, my wife, really enjoys journeying through pregnancy with the women in her life, right? It was a really exciting time for her when her sister and her were pregnant at the same time. There was a sense of, like, shared experience and camaraderie, right? So imagine this dynamic, but, like, dialed up to 11, Because not only are Mary and her cousin pregnant at the same time, but one is pregnant far beyond her years of being able to conceive, and the other is pregnant before she's done the thing that is usually required to get pregnant. And they're carrying children who are going to radically change the world forever and fulfill God's long-awaited promises. So this is a big deal. And this just goes to show for us, too, that for God, nothing is ever too late or too early if he wills it. All right, so Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment that was spoken to her by the Lord. And then Mary breaks out in this song of praise that I want you to just focus on and reflect on. Don't let it just be another Christmas passage. Take take in what Mary is singing here. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he he has looked with favor on the lowliest of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and in his holy name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned home. Okay, so Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and it's about a three to five day journey from where Mary lived. So it would have been a little hazardous, so she likely would have gone with a caravan in order to avoid being mugged or attacked. So there was this sense of urgency in this season that Mary needed to be with her cousin during this time. And it says that John leaped in the womb upon hearing Mary's voice. Jewish tradition regarded the human fetus as a fully-fledged human being who could respond to external stimuli. 
And two weeks ago, we read that an angel told Elizabeth that her son John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. In this account, John is responding to the presence of the Messiah, of whom he will one day prophesy and eventually baptize. And this word for leap here in the Greek is exclusively associated with the word joy. It's the, uh, one of the verb versions of joy that you might see associated with like a cow jumping in the field. I know, kind of a weird image, but that's what the dictionary said. Okay. <laughs> so this story tells us a few things. It tells us that joy is something that only God can give to his children. Charles Spurgeon said, joy in God is the happiest of all joys. It is a gift born of the Spirit, born out of his presence. Notice how Luke goes out of his way to remind the reader that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. John is experiencing a joy that can be found only in the Spirit, and we'll come back to that later. And if we look at Mary's song, it's this beautiful piece of Hebrew-style poetry, and uh, Hebrew poetry made use of something called synonymous parallelism. If you want to write that down, that could be good. Uh, Basically, what it means is that the second line mirrors the first line, but it emphasizes the same thought in a different way. We see in verse 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The idea that worshiping God, magnifying the Lord, is the same as expressing my joy towards him, that joy is a posture of my worship towards God. So there are two main themes that we're going to draw from this story. It's this idea that joy is a two-part dance. One, it's that it's a noun, and joy is also a verb. Joy is God's gift to us through the Spirit, a noun, and it is jo- our, joy is also our response to him in worship, a verb. So Jesus actually wants to give us joy, but we do have an active part to play in the receiving in, in the living out of that joy. During the candle lighting, Josh and Haley read out of John chapter 15, where Jesus describes himself as the vine and his followers as the branches. And he tells his disciples, abide in me, remain in me, draw your life from me. You have to lose your life in order to find it. You have to pick up your cross and follow me. And he tells them that he wants them to live their lives this way, to draw their life from the vine, to give up themselves, to find him so that his joy may be in them and that their joy may be complete. The scriptures reveal to us time and time again that joy is something that we have to actively participate in and choose. It is a gift from God, something that cannot be found without him, but it is also something like all of God's gifts that must be stewarded in order to become what it was fully intended to be. In Genesis, right, the gift was of the garden was just that. It was a gift that God intended for human beings' enjoyment, that they could be in the garden and benefit from it. And God asked uh, the human beings to enjoy it, but he also said, have dominion over it, subdue it, and multiply the good in it. This is the nature of all of God's good gifts. If you're anything like me, we get into attitudes of, of asking God for things like peace, right? We say, hey, God, give me your peace. But then I fail to steward my life in a way that would engender peace, I would rather that Jesus just wave his magic wand over my life and then all of a sudden I start feeling better about things. But that's not actually the precedent that God has given to us in the scriptures. His gifts are things that we need to be actively engaged in in order to bring about their best good. Dallas Willard famously wrote that grace is not opposed to earning, it's opposed to 
or sorry, is not opposed to, grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. Joy, like any gift from God, is something which he gives us agency to steward and develop and to multiply. So maybe you've heard, listen, joy is a choice. You know, I think this is partially true, but is it like just one choice, one time? Or is it a series of choices? Is it just as simple as flipping on the happy switch? Or is it more like a summation of many choices made over a period of time which amalgamate in joy? So we have a hard time getting our son to eat vegetables. He's six. Anyone relate to that? Okay, mostly perfect parents. Okay, great. Um, he has a hard time eating his vegetables. And so we do what any good parent does, and we lie to him in order to manipulate him into healthy habits. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> kind of. Uh, so we told him, we said, William, you know why the Hulk is so strong? It's because he eats his green vegetables. That's why he's green, right? He's really into the Hulk, so he was into that. And so one time he took one piece of lettuce and he gagged for about a minute trying to get it down. And then he rolled up his sleeve and flexed his little skeleton arm and said, I'm strong now, right? And the next time we encouraged him later to eat his vegetables, he said, but I already ate salad. Like, remember that one time I already ate vegetables? I think sometimes we view things like choosing joy like that. Like, I chose joy that one time. How come I'm not happy? How come I'm not experiencing joy? Yes, we choose joy, but it's not as simple as just putting on the happy face. That's fake, right? Joy is something that we choose every day that grows and matures over time under the stewarding and shepherding care and love of Jesus. So that when we need joy, in deep places of sorrow, it's a muscle that has been rigorously developed and trained, right? There's a reason why Paul in prison was able to sing songs of praise while he was in chains. He had chosen joy, not just in the prison, but he had chosen a life of abiding in Jesus and choosing joy so that when the rubber met the proverbial road, he was able to draw on that strength to, to comfort him in the prison, right? Joy is an indicator of a robust and healthy spiritual life. Now, this doesn't mean that those who are filled with joy do not experience things like grief or sadness. Jesus himself experienced grief and sadness. In the same way, a generally fit person might still get sick or be struck with an illness. But generally speaking, joy is an indicator of a life that abides in Christ. I'm going to say that a few times in the message, so if you want to write that down, you can. Joy is an indicator of a life that abides in Christ. If someone wakes up one day and they say, I choose to be healthy today, like that's great. <laughs> but your ability to get healthier over time will depend upon the many choices that you make in the coming days, weeks, months, years, and actually for the rest of your life, right? Now we all know that physical health isn't always so simple, that people who make really healthy choices can sometimes be afflicted with things far beyond their control. But generally speaking, if I make good decisions about what I eat, my physical activity, my habits, that generally the healthier it will make my life. Spiritual health is the same way. We all know that things like love, like love is more than a feeling, right? Cue Boston song there, right? <laughs> love is, in fact, demonstrated through my choices. Love must be practiced, and we get better at love as we grow. The same is true of every fruit of the Spirit, which is what joy is. Grace is not opposed to earning, it's opposed, or it's not, it's opposed to earning, it's not opposed to effort. So how do we cultivate and steward joy? We're going to do the classic uh, pastor three-point thing. So if you want to take some notes, here we go. How do we pastor and steward and cultivate joy? We have to abide, cut out, 
and embrace. We're going to talk about what exactly, but abide, cut out, and embrace. So the disciplines of fasting and prayer have been a part of God's people for thousands of years, and they're rich with meaning. But one of the meanings that's commonly understood is that fasting is me laying down something in order to pick something up. I lay down something like eating in order to pick up something like prayer. Prayer and fasting are always done together. The idea is that I respond to God's love by cutting out what I think I need and picking up what he tells me I really need. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew 4, he quotes Deuteronomy, and he says that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we embrace the love of God, abide. We cut out the things we think we need, fast. And we pick up the things that God has for us, pray. So let's start with this first one, abide. Evelyn Underhill said this, This is the secret of joy. We shall no longer strive for our own way, but commit ourselves easily and simply to God's way, acquiescence in his will, and in, doing, and in so doing, find our peace. So John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Lay down your life if you want to find it. Submit yourselves to me, and I will give you joy. Joy is a byproduct of a life that abides. Remember in the beginning we talked about the Holy Spirit? So we believe that God the Father... God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. One God, three distinct persons. We call this the triune Godhead, or the Trinity. So we believe that the Holy Spirit is God. So the Holy Spirit is the presence and power of the living God. And Luke said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. So when Mary visits Elizabeth and John leaps in Elizabeth's womb, John can't physically see Mary he doesn't have the cognitive ability to understand that Jesus is in there, right? John is experiencing a joy that transcends physical boundaries of our world. Now, Red Hills is a four-square church, if you didn't know, which means that we're Pentecostal, which means we really love the Holy Spirit. And the reason why we really love the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is the living presence of God in us. It's not just a nice thought, like, oh, isn't it nice that God is with you? No, we believe that the Spirit of God in us is actually how the Christian experiences things like Christian hope and peace and joy and love. And without the presence of God, we actually cannot find those things. We can white-knuckle our way and discipline ourselves to try to find joy and peace and love all we want, but we'll only ever get halfway there without the presence of God. So the joy that we have in Christians is a joy that is found only in the embrace of God's living presence and power in our lives. So we are given the gifts of Christ, like joy through the Spirit, through the presence of God in us. And then we have the burden of stewardship to cultivate and multiply those gifts. Joy is a byproduct of a life that abides. We are to be drawing everything in our lives from the example of Jesus. Everything needs to come back to Jesus. You know, we are creatures that are built to emulate. Did you know this? that we are always copying. From a very young age, we learn to navigate the world by emulating the people around us. What are we emulating? Because you are emulating something and someone. Who are we emulating? What are we being formed in the likeness of? In Deuteronomy 6, there's this prayer. It's called the Shema, and it's really important to our faith. I'm going to read it for you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your doorframes of your houses and on your gates. What is this? God is asking his people to baptize their lives in the scriptures to surround themselves with God's commands so that they may be formed by his character. We are all being formed by something. We are all abiding in something. Listen, God can do a lot with a submitted heart, but when we have divided loyalties, when there are things that are competing for influence in our lives, then we end up inhibiting the joy that God wants to give us. How many of you have signed up for the class of Christianity, but we've yet to take the work seriously? We have yet to take the assignments seriously. We complain about how we're not learning anything, but we're not applying ourselves to the work. Grace is not opposed to earning, or it's opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. So we need to abide in Christ. I'll get that quote right one day when I say it. (laughs) So we need to abide in Christ, but we also need to cut out what's competing for our devotion to Christ. In John 15, Jesus says that he cuts away every branch that does not produce fruit and it gets burned. We have to embrace Jesus. We have to abide in Jesus, but we also need to cut out what's robbing us of joy. All right, so what are the things that we need to cut out? We need to cut out unhealthy comparison, anxiety and fear, and sinful pleasures. Those are three things that we need to cut out. Let's start with the first one, unhealthy comparison. Abigail Dodds says, comparison isn't the thief of joy. Now, there's a famous quote from Teddy Roosevelt, I'm sure you've heard it, that comparison is the thief of joy. But here's the thing, I think this is perhaps not fully realized. It is true that typically the way that we compare ourselves to others will usually lead us away from joy, because when we compare ourselves to others, especially on platforms like, I don't know, social media, there is a spirit of competition and judgment, right? But not from you, because you guys are better than that. But either I'm feeling discouraged about my own life in light of someone else's life, or I'm sitting in judgment of somebody else's lifestyle, right? This sort of comparison is obviously problematic, and most of us in this room have not been untouched by this dynamic on social media. But comparison itself is actually a very normal cognitive process. Like we said, we're built to emulate. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians, right, emulate me as I emulate Christ. The goal shouldn't be to stop comparing ourselves to others, but rather to change the way in which we compare ourselves to others. Abigail Dodd says this, leading our comparisons in the right direction, away from envy, pride, covetousness, and self-pity, and towards Christ-like imitation and the fear of God will turn us into better parents, mentors, and friends. I think it's really important that we be able to celebrate the lives of others without being trapped in our own insecurities and self-obsession. That's important. When we look at others in light of ourselves, we miss out on what God has for us. God has something for you, and he has something for your neighbor. And they might be completely different journeys. Embrace the journey that God has you on and stop unhealthily comparing yourself to their story. All right, we also need to cut out anxiety and fear. R.C. Sprawl says, It is anxiety that robs us of our joy. And what is anxiety but fear? Fear is the enemy of joy. It is hard to be joyful when we are afraid. 
So again, Jesus says we got to prune away the dead things, the things that are competing. You know, in Mark 8, there's a story where Jesus feeds 4,000 plus people, right? And after he feeds these people, he gives this parable to the disciples that feels kind of out of left field for them. And he says, watch out for the yeast of Herod and the yeast of the Pharisees. Weird. What does yeast do in bread? It's a rising agent, right? So unleavened bread, flat bread, is baked without yeast. If yeast gets into it, it ruins the mixture, right? The practice of baking unleavened bread for the Hebrews was a symbol of purity. So the Passover was celebrated with bread that was pure. It was without yeast. And Jesus compares the influence of empire, Herod, and the influence of legalistic religion, the Pharisees, and he says, this is yeast in the bread. If you even let a little bit of either of that yeast into the mixture, it will ruin the process. When the heat of life comes upon us, it reveals what is in us. It reveals what gets a rise out of us. Okay. <laughs> so the point is, are we drawing our life from the vine? Are we drawing our life from Jesus? Or are we drawing our life from popular culture, from nationalism, from empire? Are we drawing our life from hyper-religiosity, from paranoia, from stubborn fundamentalism? Are we making our pastors the voice of God himself? Jesus seems to be saying that do, doing any of these things is equally dangerous. That even a little bit of yeast, even a little bit of trust in any of these sources beyond Jesus will ruin the mixture. And this is why he says in Mark 8, Jesus says that he fed the 4,000 because he had compassion on them. And he says, beware of the, Her the yeast of Herod, beware, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees because they do not care about you. Jesus is the only one who actually cares for you. I think we need to be corrected a little bit, myself included. But I want you to hear this. The media platforms that we follow do not care about us. They don't. Our popular media is fueled by fear. It's designed to generate anxiety. It chooses the language of outrage, and it will create echo chambers. Friends, we are always being discipled. Are we being made to emulate someone or something? Yes, always. I like to think that I'm really smart, that I have all kinds of human agency, that I have strong free will and the ability to choose for myself my own destiny, that I can lean on my own willpower to determine who I am, that I'm a thinking creature. But the fact is, I am much more inclined to be tribalistic. That's how I am. I like to think and feel things that like-minded people tell me that I should think and feel, rather than determine for myself what I need to think or feel. The ugly truth is that I am much more a byproduct of the influence is in my life than I am of my own free thinking and willpower. That's the truth. We are creatures who are designed for discipleship. That's who we are. It's how we grow. It's how we exist. The question is not, am I being influenced by some outside voice? That's not the question. You are. The question is, what outside voices are we allowing to influence us? And are they competing for God's voice? Because that will affect your joy. That's the equation that Jesus gives you. He says, if you want joy, 100% of where you draw your life needs to come from me. Everything else gets cut off. Everything else gets burned. You want joy? Abide in me. 
follow me. Lay down your own priorities and pick up mine, and you will have joy. What vines are we being grafted into? What yeast are we allowing in the mixture? This is just as much for me as it is for you. So I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at us. Listen, (laughs) we need to figure this out. What influences are competing for Christ in our lives? Who or what are we allowing to disciple us? Who do we sound like when we speak? Do we sound like Jesus? Or do we sound like Ben Shapiro? Do we sound like Jesus or do I sound like Oprah Winfrey? Do I sound like Jesus or do I sound like Donald Trump? Do I sound like Jesus or do I sound like Bernie Sanders? Do I sound like Jesus or do I sound like Joe Rogan or Bill Mayer? I'll let you fill in the blank before you start getting angry. But who do you sound like? Do you sound like Christ? Are you being formed in the depths of your soul, being told what to love and how to love and how to be by the culture or by your Savior? It will affect your joy. It will. Discipleship is immersion. Write it on the door frames. Write it on the gates. Write it on your heart. Plaster it to your forehead. That's literally what God asks his people to do. What are we immersing ourselves in? We need to be immersed in the presence of God and in the scriptures if we're going to have joy to the fullest. So, what things do we need to cut out? What, th- what yeast is getting in the mixture? There are three things. One of them is sinful pleasures. We talked about anxiety and fear. We talked about something else. What was the first thing we talked about? Unhealthy comparison. Thank you. Someone's paying attention. That's great. We also need to cut out sinful pleasures. Thomas Aquinas said this, Man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys, it is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. Wow. Listen, God designed things to be pleasurable. He did. But pleasure cannot substitute peace. Pleasure cannot substitute hope. Pleasure cannot substitute joy. And our culture is abundant in places to find pleasure and comfort a feeling of escapism and distraction. But pleasure is fleeting. And pleasurable satisfaction, it's a moving target. So when does pleasure become sinful? Well, it's when pleasure becomes the goal of one's life rather than the byproduct of it. That's when pleasure becomes sinful. Because look, God designed things to be pleasurable like sexual intimacy. But sexual intimacy is not designed for pleasure alone. Right? God designed sexuality to draw us towards our spouses in a life of intimacy and closeness. Often, but not always, procreation. And yes, it's pleasurable, but when we decide to rearrange the established order of God's design based on our hierarchy of importance, that's when we fall into sin. Sin is reordering God's design into ours based on our perceived values of importance. Remember, sin is just simply us meeting our own needs in ways that God never intended. What the human heart is craving in all things pleasurable is actually joy. But at the heart of all things joyful, get this, is not actually pleasure. It's shalom. It's rightly ordered relationships with one another. It's reconciliation and renewal and rightly ordered relationships with my God. That is actually where I find joy. And pleasure comes from it, not the other way around. So if we seek pleasure, we're actually putting the cart before the horse. And that's a really frustrating life to live. All right, so we've talked about what we need to cut out. What do we need to embrace? Three things to embrace in place of these things that we're setting down. Gratitude, contentment, choosing hope or worship, and self-giving love, charity. Let's start with the first one, gratitude, contentment. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, gratitude changes, it's for you. Um, <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, gratitude changes the pangs of memory into tranquil joy. Being able to practice the discipline of gratitude is really important in a person's life. It's not rocket science to figure this out. And Mary practices gratitude in this passage. She has a lot to be mad about if you think about it. Because everyone knows that her and Joseph aren't married, so when she gets pregnant, there's all kinds of shame probably coming from her community. She, her life was on a very different trajectory than what she, happened to her, right? She was expecting her life to go very differently. And now there's a lifetime of gossip following her about how sinful she is, even though God really chose her because of her righteousness and her humility. And Mary knows that she has to rejoice in the Lord and give him thanks because there isn't much in her world to rejoice in apart from him. She expressed gratitude to God in her song, and she recounts all of the ways that through her, God is showing up for her and for Israel. She says, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliest of his servants. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. I mean, she knows that God is protecting her reputation. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's recounting all the ways that God is showing up. You can find so many university studies revealing how practicing gratitude and giving thanks generally makes us happier and healthier people. That's not by accident. That's how God designed us. So practice gratitude. It helps. Two, choosing hope or worship. Psalm 119, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. How many of you know that, that worship is not just something that takes place on a Sunday that we watch happen? When Ashley and the team are up here, they're not doing good music in order to entertain you because that's what we do as a sing-along on Sunday mornings. They are facilitating a space where you get to actively participate in the glory of God to make his name great. And when, when we worship, it's actually a weapon against the powers of darkness because worship acts as memory. It acts as a reminder for who God is. That even when we can't think our way to how God is good, we can sing our way to the remembrance of his promises and his truth. That's what worship is. Mary and Elizabeth both model this. When she finds out she's pregnant, she sings a song of praise to God. When Mary sees her, her cousin and she's, and she's excited, she sings to God. Worship is a part of the rhythms of remembrance. To declare God's truths aloud, to encourage one another and to encourage our own souls. That's what the Psalms were designed to do. They were the hymnals of the Hebrews, choosing to actively remember what God is, who he is, and what he's done. I love that line in the first song we sang. It said, let praise be a weapon that conquers anxiety. That's not just a cute turn of phrase. That's how the Bible is designed to teach us to fight the powers of evil. Third thing, self-giving love and charity. The Apostle Paul said this, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So notice that in Mary's song, she goes out of her way to highlight the exaltation of the humble and the provision of the weak and the poor. This is a part of biblical mercy and justice. And this is a part of God's good work that we find joy in serving people who need it. The good work of God is always found in loving service to the poor. Jesus even went out of his way to emphasize this in Matthew 25, right? He says, hey, you visited me in prison. You fed me when I was, na or fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. 
And they're like, when did we do all those things? And he said, hey, guess what? When you did that for anyone, you were actually worshiping me. You want to find the heart of God's justice? We go to the poor. We go to the needy. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that people who are really self-obsessed are generally very unhappy, right? And I think self-care is really great, but I think what's a missing ingredient to self-care is actually selflessness. God mandated rhythms of rest and celebration for his people, yes. It's just as much a spiritual discipline as reading your Bible or fasting, but sometimes I think we try to cure our self-obsessiveness by coddling ourselves when really what we need is to get outside ourselves a little bit and think about other people. Think about it. Stagnant water occurs in nature when there's an inflow of water, but there's no outflow. We are designed to be creatures who freely give away what we freely received in Jesus. Giving is a part of how we worship, and it's a part of how we find joy. It's the Christmas season. How many of you have heard of somebody named Santa Claus? Right? I want to show you one of the earliest known pictures of Santa Claus. So how many of you know that Santa Claus is actually based on a real historical figure? someone who actually existed. His name was St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was the Archbishop of Mira. He actually lived in the later half of the third century uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey. There's not a lot that we have in documentation concerning St. Nicholas because he was so humble, he insisted on doing everything in secret and not letting people talk about what he had done. We see this on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus says, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. St. Nicholas lived this out. Well, the stories go that he was very, very rich. That he was born into a very, very rich family, but he sold everything he had to serve the poor. Well, one day in the town where he was a priest, he found out about this man who uh, was very poor. He was a single father and he had three daughters. And back then, uh, you had to have money to give as a dowry in order to marry off your daughters. It was just the way of things. And he didn't have any money. And so they were poor, they were destitute, they were hungry. And so he was considering selling his daughters into prostitution in order to put food on the table. St. Nicholas found out about this. And so he, in the middle of the night, the story goes, that he grabbed a bag of gold and threw it through their window. And that it fell into the window and landed inside of a shoe that was warming by the fireplace. And this is where we get some of the imagery of what we see in Santa Claus today. And this tradition of this early priest continued on through the church, and eventually Dutch settlers brought it to the Americas in the 18th century. And the Dutch uh, translation for uh, St. Nicholas is Sinter Niklaus, which eventually we heard as Sinterklaus and eventually Santa Claus. And I think it's actually really fitting that this season of joy is represented by the profound generosity of a devout Christian. And I think it's a real shame. I think he would be really... Uh, saddened to see how his image was being distorted in order to distract from the focus on Jesus. That's why I think we need to hashtag reclaim Christian history, right? Because this is really cool. It's really cool that there is a saint, that there is someone in the Christian faith that has expressed his generosity based on what Christ has done for him. This is where we find joy in freely giving what we have received for ourselves. And this is why we come to communion, because this is something that Jesus actually modeled for us. He asks us to lay down our lives, to abide in him, to pick up the cross and follow him. But he was willing to do everything that he asked us to do. And he gave the biggest gift of all, which was himself. He laid down his life so that we could be with him forever. He conquered death. He took on 
uh, pain and sorrow and suffering and shame in order that he might resurrect and defeat those things and invite us into that new life. So as we reflect on Jesus in this Christmas season, remember that our generosity, that our giving is not just about a jolly red guy that walks around and gives people presents. That actually Christian generosity is rooted in a deep joy. That when we abide in Christ, we are freely giving away not just things, not just tokens. We are giving away the generosity of our Savior. That we are giving this self-sacrificing love to the people around us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have modeled true self-giving generosity for us. I pray that you would alone be the source of our joy, that you would help us determine what yeast is in our lives, what is competing for your voice, that we would abide solely in you. We ask that we would receive fully what you have for us, that your joy may be in us and that our joy may be complete. We give you all the glory. We give you all the thanks and the praise. In your holy name we pray. Amen.